Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. It has been a remarkable year of discoveries and medical advances at Mayo Clinic's Center for Individualized Medicine. Some of the innovations include personalized treatments for cancer and rare diseases and the development of life-saving artificial intelligence algorithms. All of the center's efforts are driven by advanced genetic analysis and aimed at providing patients with answers, treatment options, and optimism. Due to the impact of COVID-19, the ninth annual Individualizing Medicine Conference will be offered virtually in a shortened format on October 14th. On today's program, we'll introduce you to three of the center's pioneering scientists who will be featured at the upcoming conference. So let's get started. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Helena Gazelka. It has been a remarkable year of discoveries and medical advances at the Mayo Clinic Center for Individualized Medicine. Some of the innovations include personalized treatments for cancer and rare diseases, and the development of life-saving artificial intelligence algorithms. With us today is Dr. Marina Walther-Antonio, an assistant professor in the Department of Surgery and in the Mayo Clinic Center for Individualized Medicine Microbiome Program. So would you start by telling us what is the microbiome and why is it important? So the microbiome is all the microbes that live within your body and on your body. They are born with you. Um, they, they stay with you for your entire life. And for the most part, they have a very important role in our health. The importance of that is that our body has evolved to really rely on these microorganisms to support a lot of functions that are necessary. And when there's some disturbance to that, say you become ill because of something, you take antibiotics, and now certainly this system, this balance gets disturbed. Well, now you could have a situation where you're more prone to get sicker or more often because you're out of balance, your protection is kind of off the balance. Um, and this can be hard actually to fix. It, it, it can be difficult. Uh, it can lead to chronic conditions that are very difficult to, uh, to, to fix in, in the long run. I think that much of our audience will be interested and intrigued to find out that there are good bacteria, et cetera, that live with us and on us and in us, uh, because we always think of the ones that are infectious. So that's really interesting. Well, you are specifically studying the microbiome and how it affects women's health, and particularly in relation to cancers. Can you tell us how these are connected? We are starting to see, and there has been you know, studies we published and other investigators have published um, at the Mayo Clinic and, and throughout the world, showing associations. These are you know, what we call correlations, uh, meaning that somebody who has a cancer has a microbiome that is a little different than somebody who does not have cancer. And that can be seen you know, right at the beginning stages of cancer, um, right throughout its worst part when it progresses, metastasizes, and becomes more dangerous to the patient's health, and also uh, in resistance to treatment when we try to treat it. And we don't know if this is just a coincidence or if there's actually a role uh, uh, that the microbiome is playing in the causation of cancer. Your most recent uh, research has focused on endometrial cancer, which is the fourth most common cancer in women. What can you tell us about endometrial cancer? So endometrial cancer is, is a cancer in, in the endometrium, which is the internal layer of the uterus uh, in women. And it's not a very well-known cancer, I think, despite what you just said, which is the fourth most common cancer in women. It's, it's also the most common gynecologic cancer. It's more 
common in, in the U.S. Than, than cervical cancer or ovarian cancer. It is a cancer that is um, it's more common than leukemia. Uh, it's, it's, it kills more people than melanoma. It's hard to understand why it is that, you know, people don't talk as much about that. I, my, my, my take is that it probably has to do with privacy and people don't want to talk about that is, you know, it's a, it's a cancer in the reproductive system that often leads to hysterectomy, which is the removal of the uterus as a whole. So I think because this isn't much spoken about or discussed that women might not know uh, what to look for and what the signs and symptoms are. You mentioned uh, postmenopausal uh, bleeding. Are there other things that um, uh, can it happen before menopause? And are there other indications that someone might want to see their doctor about this concern? It can happen before menopause. It's it's not as common by far. Um, but you know, bleeding also excessive bleeding, um, abnormal bleeding that is not your common. You know, women kind of learn their own cycles, and if they uh, notice a disruption in the amount of bleeding or uh, cycles. That's something to, uh, you know, to mention. Of course, it's more likely to be of some other cause rather than endometrial cancer, but sometimes, unfortunately, it is. You know, other than that are things that, unfortunately, are fairly common to women. You know, it would be kind of feeling pressure, discomfort uh, in, in the abdomen, which, you know, most women do experience often. And so it's, it's hard. It's kind of a diffuse symptom. Um, to, to know what uh, what could be causing it. It seems that the incident rates of endometrial cancer are rising. Why would that be? The thought is that it, it has to do with increased rates of obesity. Um, so obesity is the main risk factor for the disease, also the aging of the population. We we have more postmenopausal women than we ever had, and so it's just a numbers game. It's, it's epidemiological, it's thought. There could be other factors. Uh, we know estrogen can play a, a role as well and opposed estrogen therapies, which are not really uh, done anymore because of that same uh, reason. But I think the main reasons are epidemiological and have to do with just the population. Your research focuses on um, certain risk factors, uh, such as being postmenopausal. Can you tell us a little bit about your study and um, how menopause is related? Yeah, so we looked at um, risk factors in women who had uh, benign, you know, surgery, the same type of surgery, hysterectomy, removal of the uterus, but for other reasons, benign. And we were interested in seeing how they compare to the, those same people that have cancer and uh, obese women, women who are post, postmenopausal. Um, and vaginal pH was another thing we looked that there's some women who have a higher vaginal pH. And what we saw is that most of those factors do impact the microbiome, more or less the changes, as you would expect. Tell us about the screening tool that you developed for endometrial cancer. We tested in a, in a, in a blind manner um, with the presence of that microbe in the vagina of women who have cancer versus not. And we saw that it has a positive predictive value of 86%, meaning if, you're, if you have that um, bacteria in, in your vagina, and this is Peripheromonas is the name, but um, if you have it and you're postmenopausal, there's an 86% chance that you do have endometrial cancer. So, um, you know, which would be nice thinking in, into the future that that's a lot better than an endometrial biopsy. I never had it, fortunately, but I hear it's not pleasant um, and it's a lot of pain. Um, and so if you can avoid that and, and just even self-sample, that would be much, much easier. People maybe would be more likely to do it um, and, you know, wouldn't have to suffer through it so much. Um, so that's that's kind of what we are thinking, and particularly for what's called type 2 endometrial cancer, which is 
uh, more aggressive. Um, it's the type of cancer that tends to be, has less symptoms. Um, it's more common in black women as well. So that could be something that would help um, that population in particular try to um, detect it early so that it's in a treatable stage. Mm-hmm. Your recent uh, research indicates that there may be an opportunity for intervention months or even a year prior to the development of endometrial cancer. How did you make that discovery? That is part of a parallel study that we did in epigenetics. Um, uh, and, and in this case was methylation. Um, epigenetics is uh, mo- it's modifications to, to our DNA. Um, I think of it, my analogy to epigenetics and methylation is kind of like a car um, engine, right? So, you, you know, imagine your pedals, your brakes, and your accelerator are your genes, and your epigenetics or methylation is your ignition. So you can push your pedals and as much as you want. If, if the engine is not on, it's not going to do anything to it, right? So the gene has to be on or off, and that's what methylation does. You can turn it off or on, even though you don't have any mutations. You, you know, people are not familiar with uh, DNA mutations. It, if it's, the gene is not active, it doesn't actually matter. So... So what we did was to look, and this has been studied by others, including at, uh, at Mayo Clinic. Um, Jamie Backham Gamas has, has been one of the pioneers on that, and she was also a co-author in our paper. But looking into women who, um, Mayo, of course, has something unique, which is, you know, we have so many patients that have been with us for so long, we can go back and see where they were 10 years ago. And women who've had biopsies back then, and what we did is a study of women who didn't have cancer at the time, and we had the biopsies, but then developed cancer in the future. And this was a period of up to nine years. And then women who were matched in age, BMI, all those things, but that did not develop cancer so that we see what was different. Could we have gone back then when they had that benign biopsy that, um, and know which one, which ones of them were going to develop cancer in the future because we really want to save those. And we do know that one in four women who have endometrial cancer have had a benign biopsy in the past, meaning there's an opportunity to find them and really avoid that altogether. Um, so that's, you know, and the average time frame that we saw was about a year um, uh, that we could distinguish uh, features. And those features were those genes on and are off um, and for, for them. Uh, we already see them, uh, those genes already um, turned off uh, a year before they develop cancer, which is a, you know, signature of cancer already kind of starting probably, even though it's not obvious, it's not identifiable, it's already in that direction. And we probably should should be thinking about uh, intervening at that stage and doing something uh, either at least, at the very least, I would say, a more closely follow up to those women that are, are on that path uh, or even try to modify it, try to intervene. And in my mind, thinking, you know, if it's something that is microbiome related, you can think that it's a lot easier to intervene on your microbiome than it is on you, right? Uh, if we have a drug or some kind of intervention that's going to target the microbe, it's less uh, aggressive than if you're targeting uh, the patient genes um, or, or the patient directly. So I think there's great hope for, for good therapies that could be very helpful to patients and not, not as detrimental to their health, hopefully. Mayo Clinic Radio will return right after this. Stay with us. You also study cervical and ovarian cancers. What have you learned about those diseases? Our hope was that to try to find something like this, like we found for endometrial cancer bacteria, maybe a a vaginal marker, it would be perfect. 
for ovarian cancer. We looked, and unfortunately, we so far haven't found anything like that, um, which is unfortunate. But we did find and are starting to find and, and put together a manuscript on this, but we are starting to find a potential role for treatment resistance. Um, there seems to be some, some different signatures um, in women that end up responding or not responding to treatment. And so there could be some, something we, we could try to do about treatment at least, even if not detection. Um, so that's where we are in ovarian cancer. Cervical cancer, it's a, a kind of different project. It's something we, we have developed for, um, uh, the original idea was the Democratic Republic of Congo with a humanitarian type of streak in thinking about uh, giving women the capacity to test themselves for high-risk um, viral strains that are known to cause cervical cancer, HPV, human papilloma virus. Um, and this is a project that we are developing now for other targets and even for U.S. women because when we talked about this idea here, um, you know, people came back to us and said, well, why not here? Who wants the pap smear anyway? And I was like, well, that's a good point. Uh, I don't think anybody enjoys that experience. So, um, so that would be something that could, you know, potentially in theory substitute something like that. It would be just a vaginal, you know, or a urine test even um, is what we're trying to develop. So you would just basically pee in a cup and dip a stick in it. And then it kind of changes color, not like a pregnancy test. If you have it turns blue and um, and so you, you know, it would be an easier way for you to do at home, your privacy and, and kind of not having to, to go through that, uh, perhaps some years. So anyway, those are things that we are, that we are thinking, um, and, and testing at this point. Marina, you have a really interesting educational background, including, um, experiences with NASA. How has your work as an astrobiologist affected the research that you do today? Uh, that's something I, I, that was I started as an undergraduate doing astrobiology research, you know, think Mars missions and green men and all kinds of things. Uh, really interested in all that and continue to be um, and be involved in those efforts. Um, they really help each other. And I've, I've made many jumps uh, back and forth in technology development. Things that you use to try to detect life uh, in other planets um, are not that different from trying to detect rare biomarkers in humans. It's, uh, you know, uh, the, the department of the former department of chair um, uh, of surgery Heidi Nelson uh, when she recruited me she said you're um, coming here to look for life in uh, aliens in our body it's kind of the same and uh, I thought you know it kind of is kind of like that uh, so it's it's the technology is also actually not that different as you might think also thinking of complex environments that we don't understand yet in the entire complexity the entire system the links uh, it's also uh, fairly similar trying to get a systems approach to um, how we think about these things rather than a very uh, narrow point of view. Um, you know, in astrobiology, you have to have that because it's not our planet. It's, it's another planet that we don't know well. We've never been there. Um, and when you think about your human body is also kind of projecting a little bit of the future. If you, and I'm interested in cancer prevention in particular. <clears throat> I need to understand and why is it that you are going to develop cancer somebody else isn't? And there's so many complex factors that go into that um, that you need to take them into account. It's not going to be a one thing. Uh, you know, if it was, we, it would have been solved a long time ago, right? We all know that. There's many intelligent people that have dedicated their lives to this. Um, it's, it's a very complicated problem that needs to be thought out as a, as a whole, probably. We'll get a chance to learn more about your work at the upcoming virtual conference for the Center for Individualized Medicine. 
uh, annual conference on October the 14th. Tell us a little about that. Yeah, so in, in that in that conference, we, we are going to uh, speak about, you know, uh, kind of this this idea of of thinking of treating the patient, I guess, uh, and understanding the patient rather than the disease. Right, you're more than your disease. Your disease is just a little part of you, and we can defeat the disease very easily. Right, the problem is keeping the patient alive and well. That's actually the difficult part, and that's the important part. Um, and that's how we we want to think about it, and 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 thinking along the lines of individualized medicine. In that, we you know we all know that cancer treatments currently they help a lot of people, uh, but there's large proportions of people that are not helped by the therapies because they don't respond to them. Other people respond, but they're also, there's toxic effects to them that are sometimes even worse than, than, than the cure, unfortunately, and everything in between. Um, what we want to understand, and this, again, going back to astrobiology is not that different because when we're thinking about, say, astronaut health, um, you know, it, it, I, it's not going to help NASA if I figure out a way to keep, um, person alive in space. What I need to keep is this astronaut alive in space, right? This person right in front of me. So I need to understand this person and what they need uh, to stay alive in space and well. And so this is the same thing for patients. It doesn't help me to, you know, uh, necessarily to help a hypothetical person, an average person that often doesn't exist. It's just a construction of mind, right? But keeping you alive and uh, is a different question and understanding what's been your trajectory uh, who are you now? Where are you going? And what can we do to put you on a path that is healthy for you, which might be different from somebody else's? But that's what matters to you, right? It, it's it's your path. And that's how we need to start thinking about these things, I think. It's just uh, one person at a time and, 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 and really curing one person at a time. I think that might be what it takes uh, to defeat cancer is, is to have that mindset. What a wonderful approach. I've never met uh, two patients who had exactly the same experience. Uh, who is the intended audience of the conference? Physicians, nurses, uh, scientists, um, uh, general public, if they feel so inclined. I think there's room for everybody to reach patients, even in a way uh, that they, they understand um, and are compelled by the, by the new ideas. It's an important paradigm shift for complex and chronic diseases as well. I mean, it never ceases to amaze me the incredible work that's going on at Mayo Clinic that I don't touch on in my daily work here or even know is, is going on. And I'm so appreciative of the very important work that you're doing and of you sharing it with us today. It's been absolutely fascinating. We, we all need each other to understand all of this and, and make a difference. So thank you. Our thanks to Dr. Marina Walther Antonio for being with us to share her research with us today. Mayo Clinic Radio will return right after this. Stay with us. Artificial intelligence and technology are becoming increasingly important parts of delivering medical care. Developments in AI are moving patient care from reactive treatment to preventative and personalized care. With us to discuss this today is Dr. John Kalantari. Dr. Kalantari is an associate consultant in the Department of Surgery and a faculty member of the Mayo Clinic Center for Individualized Medicine Microbiome Program. Program. You hear so much about artificial intelligence now. It's like the kind of a buzzword in medicine until COVID came along and became the buzzword. Can you first describe for our audience what is meant by artificial intelligence or artificial general intelligence and why is it important to us? So the concept of artificial general intelligence or AGI 
is in many ways considered the holy grail of the AI community. And it, and it aims to recreate some of the most important aspects of human intelligence in algorithmic form. So this ranges from techniques like one-shot learning, which is our ability to learn something from one or just a few examples, or even something like multitask or transfer learning, which is the ability that we humans have to transfer knowledge from one domain to a completely new one uh, without any practice or training. And ultimately, there's new fields like reinforcement learning and causal inference, which resemble our ability to learn from trial and error, as well as learn how to better understand cause and effect relationships. And the reason why AGI or artificial general intelligence is a worthwhile pursuit is because it allows our algorithms and our computer systems to begin to reason, use strategies, make judgments under uncertainty. And this becomes especially important in domains like medicine, where our knowledge is, is incomplete or there's a lack of data, and which makes it difficult for traditional AI machine learning methods to perform. I understand that you are specifically studying causal inference as it relates to AI and in cancer and in other parts of medicine. I'm wondering, can you explain what is causal inference and how are these topics connected to one another? Sure. They basically allow us to understand those cause and effect relationships that we see in different phenomena in biology and medicine. We use these methods to better understand the molecular basis of cancer, for example. Because if we can understand causality and mechanism, we can better identify risk factors, therapeutic targets, and mechanisms of prevention. Many people quickly turn to traditional AI methods and machine learning to do just this. But most, if not all, AI methods share the same fundamental flaw. They rely on the use of correlations as opposed to uh, causation to understand mechanism. What this means is that many AI predictive models are trained to minimize prediction at all costs. And this leads us to build these black box models that absorb any and all correlations found in the data. And this inevitably includes spurious correlations, which may stem from data biases that are unrelated to the causal explanation of interest. And so for us in medicine biology, we want to get to that root cause, those root cause and effects relationships. So that will lead us to solutions. Your recent research has uh, focused on using AI and game theory to better understand evolution in colorectal cancer, which is the third most common cancer in men and women. Could you tell us a little bit about the implications of the work that you're doing? We used a variation of a method known as reinforcement learning to basically reverse engineer the rules of cancer progression directly from multi-omic uh, tumor data. And to do this, we basically framed cancer as this causal game of cell evolution, where the quote-unquote winners of cancer are basically the subpopulations of cells found in each tumor. And so the primary aim is to use these methods from game theory uh, to learn how and why these distinct groupings of cells survived and thrived under different evolutionary uh, selection pressures. And so we aimed to build an AI system that could take a patient tumor, tell us how and why it occurred, which mutations were responsible for the tumor's growth, 
what the likelihood of metastasis recurrence is, and then ultimately make a precise recommendation of which treatments would be the most effective for this specific patient. What are some of the primary things that you found out from this work so far? In our initial studies, uh, given a set of tumors and their associated multiomic data, our algorithm is able to infer a function that basically encodes the causal mechanisms underlying tumor progression. So we ran this algorithm on a cohort of colorectal cancer tumors. And after doing this, the, the algorithm inferred a function that recapitulated the canonical model of colorectal cancer progression from scratch, meaning it identified not only the set of mutations, but also correctly inferred the order in which they occurred. Will this work eventually help to predict who may get colorectal cancer, is it, or is it primarily after there's a tumor, you look at the tumor? That is what we're aiming for. The reason why we're looking into incorporating these causal methods is to identify those early events that could lead to metastasis or cancer uh, growth. You've recently partnered with NASA and Google Cloud in the Frontier Development Lab to build the next generation of AI algorithms for space medicine. Can you tell us a little more about this partnership and what kind of work you're doing? The Frontier Development Lab is an AI accelerator program, and it's a public-private partnership between NASA, the SETI Institute, and a few external partners, including Google Cloud, Mayo Clinic, NVIDIA, Intel, among others. And the primary goal of this eight-week program is to solve one of the many moonshot challenges in AI and space medicine. So I served as the domain lead of this year's challenge, which focused on long-duration missions in cancer. And basically, uh, the team that I mentored consisted of some of the most brilliant minds in the field of AI and machine learning around the world. And together, we all worked on a project focused on building you know, these new causal inference platforms that could use multiomic data, including genetic, epigenetic, microbiome, clinical metadata, to better understand the molecular basis of cancer in order to mitigate uh, risk of prog- progression. Dr. Kalantari, I've heard that term moonshot used um, by you today and in relation to other uh, studies and even uh, related to work in, on COVID while well, that's been going on. Can you explain to us what uh, you mean by the term moonshot? So by moonshot, we basically refer to any of these uh, high-risk, high-reward, long-term vision-type projects that require both uh, outside-the-box thinking, as I like to say, and require us to kind of go beyond what we're comfortable with in terms of methodologies and embrace that spirit of innovation. Are space medicine and AI medicine then the next kind of the next frontiers for Mayo Clinic in terms of research? Mayo Clinic has a, a deep-rooted history in aeronautics and space medicine with you know, early research and development in, with the development of the G-suit happening here in Rochester, Minnesota. I think space medicine and AI are the next frontiers that Mayo Clinic is in a position to be a leader in. You know, we're in active discussions with NASA on how to further develop and integrate some of this new technology that we're developing here at Mayo into an AI medical platform that can be used for you know, risk mitigation and astronaut health forecasting. You know, and ultimately patients here on Earth and astronauts in space will benefit from, you know, the clinical expertise and AI platforms 
that Mayo Clinic has to offer. So, you know, my goal is for Mayo Clinic to play a role in contributing not only in upcoming Artemis missions, which is NASA's goal to send human astronauts to the moon by 2024, but more ambitiously, I envision Mayo Clinic continuing its legacy in space medicine and playing a pivotal role in assisting NASA in their planned human missions to Mars by 2033. We'll have an opportunity to learn more about the work that you're doing at the upcoming Virtual Center for Individualized Medicine Conference on October the 14th. Can you tell us a little bit about that conference? The IM Conference is an annual conference uh, organized by the Center for Individualized Medicine. And at this year's conference, I'll be providing a brief glimpse into our current work in AI and provide a little more detail about our use of causal inference and causal AI methods uh, for omics-based medicine. It's been a pleasure to have Dr. John Kalantari with us today talking about advances in artificial intelligence. We'll be back with more Mayo Clinic Radio right after this. third of the U.S. population will develop cancer during their lifetime. Understanding how cancers develop on a genomic level and developing drugs to target patient-specific unique form of cancer is an approach called precision oncology. With us today to discuss this is Dr. Jewel Samater. He's a gastroenterologist and leads the clinical genomics program at the Center for Individualized Medicine at Mayo Clinic in Arizona. Let's start with one of your recent studies. It spotlighted early onset colorectal cancer. Why do some people develop colorectal cancer early in their lives when we kind of think of it as a a disease of older uh, adults? We know that at least 10% of colorectal cancers occur before age 50. Some of the risk factors for this could be underlying diseases like inflammatory bowel diseases, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, having a family history of colorectal cancer, or a genetic predisposition that is floating within a family. But at the same time, we have found that over the last 20 to 30 years, there's been a rising incidence of early onset colorectal cancer. So much so that in the last 10 years or so, we've seen that the incidence of rectal cancer specifically in females has increased by 9%. We don't think this is due to a lack of colon cancer screening since that was never employed in younger persons. So there are probably other factors, whether that is biological or environmental issues leading to young onset colorectal cancer. So one of the risk factors is an entity called familial adenomatous polyposis, or FAP. At what age is this rare genetic disease usually diagnosed, and how do you treat something like that? There are two main genetic causes of early-onset colorectal cancer. One is called Lynch syndrome. This is caused by mutations in genes that are involved in DNA mismatch repair and increase your risk of developing colorectal cancer to about 80% lifetime risk. And a number of other cancers are also increased in that condition, called uh, including endometrial cancer, small bowel, stomach cancer, several skin cancers, and renal or ureteric cancers. The condition we're talking about with you right now is a second one called familial adenomatous polyposis, or FAP. This accounts for about 1% of all colorectal cancer. 
It is caused by a mutation in a gene referred to as APC. This genetic condition is autosomal dominant. What that means is if you have the genetic condition, your son, your daughter, your brothers, and your sisters have a 50% chance of also having that genetic condition. Having one abnormal copy of that gene means you have the condition. So that's called a dominant condition. This gene, if mutated, increases your risk of developing colorectal cancer to 100% lifetime risk. Your international study on FAP found a potential combination therapy that may help patients with the most serious cases. Can you tell us a little about, about that? Our group, along with many other groups internationally, have participated and conducted a number of clinical trials looking at medications or drugs that can delay or prevent the onset of cancer in, in patients with FAP. This most recent trial uh, uh, was just published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it used two different medications, one called DFMO or eflornithine, and another medication called Sulindac. Sulindac is a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, and this study looked at using both drugs together or each drug separately in upwards of 150 FAP patients that were randomized or equally placed into all three groups and then followed on average for about four to four and a half years. What this trial found was that the patients who took the combination drug, so both drugs together, had no uh, episodes of disease disease occurring in the lower bowel or in the colorectum. None of them ended up needing colectomy or uh, excision of a remaining portion of the rectum that's often left in place even after the colon is removed or excision of a large precancerous polyp in the colorectum. It did show that in the lower bowel, it seemed to have a marked effect. So future trials will expand upon that group and look at the use of this combination drug purely for the lower gastrointestinal cancer prevention, which again is the most important cancer that occurs in FAP. The patients who you described who would typically be having surgery, would they receive this treatment instead of having surgery, even if they have polyps, or would this be an additional treatment? As a group of experts in this field, we would like to have a medication that we can apply to young FAP. FAP patients, so before they've had surgery, before they've had a large number of polyps occur, so that hopefully we can stave off surgery for years, if not decades. The second group would be patients who have a significant polyp burden or even have undergone a colectomy, but often when you undergo a colectomy, they will leave about 10 centimeters of rectum in place that continues to be at risk of cancer development. So this medication could prevent the formation of polyps and cancers in the rectum, decrease the need for colonoscopies in the future for these patients or the need for a second surgery. So how does doing genetic testing help you help uh, oncologists tailor the treatment of cancer? By understanding what cancers, for example, you're at risk for, we can either do intensive screening or even possibly prophylactic surgery. Depending on what cancer you have and the genetic mutation that may have led to it, we may be able to use targeted treatments, things such as immunotherapy or PARP inhibitors that work on a certain genetic pathway. We have known for several years now that breast and ovarian cancers that are related to an underlying BRCA mutation 
benefit from the use of a medication called a PARP inhibitor. Well, about a year ago now, there was a large clinical trial that showed pancreatic cancer. Again, pancreatic cancer, which has a very low survival rate. And if it is due to this BRCA mutation, this again, this breast cancer gene can lead to pancreatic cancer, these specific patients actually respond extremely well to that same breast cancer drug, a PARP inhibitor. So we are moving away from thinking about cancers and silos where there's a particular drug for breast cancer, a different drug for pancreatic cancer, a different drug for prostate cancer, to an understanding that, well, there are a spectrum of cancers, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, pancreas and prostate cancer, that may all be related to the same underlying genetic abnormality in BRCA. And if that's true, we should use that same breast cancer drug, a PARP inhibitor, to treat any of these cancers because the genetic pathway that led to them is the same. The Centers for Disease Control actually put prevention measures in various tiers. It turns out that genetic testing for BRCA and Lynch syndrome are placed as tier one interventions because of the very high risk of colon, uterine, breast, and ovarian cancer in these genetic syndromes. The feeling is that if we can identify them early on in a person, we have good options for the complete prevention of breast, ovarian, colon, and uterine cancer in these groups. One of the best ways to do that is to uh, cascade from the index person who has the genetic mutation and likely has the cancer at presentation. So we cascade out to unaffected family members to see who's inherited that same genetic tendency or genetic predisposition and try and target cancer prevention to those groups. Uh, both of these disorders, for example, are autosomal dominant. So if you have that genetic predisposition, your children, your siblings, your parents have a 50% risk of having that same genetic condition and therefore being at risk of those same cancers that we may potentially be able to prevent altogether. Uh, if someone undergoes a genomic genetic testing um, to look for um, propensity toward cancer, it doesn't necessarily mean they won't develop a cancer because not all cancers, we know the genetic link yet. Would that be correct? About 15 to 20% of cancers are, uh, are, are associated with a genetic inherited mutation. So the vast majority, 80%, we don't have a clear genetic cause. It's probably a combination of genes, your environment, and then some amount of bad luck as well. And we'll get a chance to learn more about the work that you are doing at the upcoming virtual Center for Individualized Medicine Conference on October the 14th. Can you tell us a little bit about what you expect from that conference? That'll be really a meeting of the minds, bring together some of the authorities across Mayo Clinic that have expertise in inherited cancer, cancer treatment, genomics of cancer, and truly individualized medicine. And we'll be able to find how these areas intersect to provide the best care possible for our patients. Thanks to Dr. Jewel Samatter for joining us today to talk about precision oncology. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, we thank you for listening.